0: So, again, in the uh, run-up to Christmas, we're thinking about um, the Lord Jesus coming into the world as uh, our Savior. Last week, we were thinking about him as the one who was sent, and what that shows us about the fulfillment of God's plans and promises, not only in the past, but also in the future. And we also thought about what we mean when we refer to Jesus as our saviour, the one who can save us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and in a future day, the very presence of sin, if we trust him, if we believe in him, if we accept the gift that he so much wants wants to give us. Now that's right at the core of the gospel, isn't it? But we also talked a little about the fact that god doesn't just want to save us and we talked about the invitation that we have through the gospel to come into a a very new and special relationship with um, with god this week we're going to be thinking about jesus as the as the son of man and how in, in in bethlehem's manger god became man, Uh, And linked to that, we're going to be thinking about the life that Jesus lived on earth and how that qualified him to be the saviour in all the ways that we were thinking about last week. So our our first reading is in Matthew chapter 1 and it's a very familiar reading at this time of year, but I'm going to be reading from verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home with your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfil what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate the marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. So that's our reading. <clears throat> We're talking here about the Genesis. Not the book of Genesis, but the Genesis. And by that, I'm referring to the Greek word which is translated as birth in verse 18. And it's the same word which is translated as genealogy in in, in, in verse 1, beginning of the chapter. We didn't read that bit, but in verse 1, the word genealogy is also the same word as birth in verse 18. And it's a word which means both origin and new beginning, so in verse 1, Matthew is saying that what follows is an account of the human origins of Jesus. And how that therefore ties into ancient prophecy. Then in verse 18, he's saying that the human birth of Jesus was in fact the dawn of a new age. It was a, it was a new beginning for the Jews, a new beginning for the, whole, for the whole world. And Matthew very quickly gets to the point explaining who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. The who is seen in the name Emmanuel, God with us, and the what is seen in the name Jesus, isn't it? He came to save, to be our Saviour. The virgin birth was a supernatural event. Uh, there's no getting away from that. It is beyond our logic and, and reasoning. And why would God choose to enter the world? in this way? We don't know. And we could ask that question about anything that God does. Why didn't he do it differently? And, and we don't know about that either. And Matthew doesn't try to explain it. He just, he just gets to stating what are the plain facts that he understands. The, the plain and amazing facts that he understands. The fact that... Of the, of the incarnation that although Jesus was the eternal God that he took on human form and was born as an ordinary man God and man combined I'd like us to think about um, each of those aspects of the identity of the Lord Firstly, he was human Okay, and being human uh, was the obvious part of his identity wasn't it? To Mary and Joseph and friends and neighbours and anyone else who met him throughout the whole of his life, they would have no doubt that he was, that he was human. Um, his humanity was self-evident, we might say. And all these 2,000 years later, there's still no real doubt, even among most non-Christians, that the Lord Jesus really did live and the life that we read about in the Gospels um, even sceptics would, you know, would acknowledge that it is probably, from their perspective, you know, the life that he lived. They might think that it's been massaged in some way, but nevertheless, there is a very broad consensus that Jesus Christ, even though we're going back 2,000 years, it's an awfully long time, that the life and times of Jesus Christ, they, they, they really happened. In fact, there's more evidence, historic evidence, for the life and times of Jesus Christ than there is for any other Ancient historical character. The likes of Julius Caesar, for example, the amount of evidence for his life and times is tiny compared with the life and times of Jesus Christ, and no one doubts the existence of Julius Caesar. So, Jesus lived, and he was a man. But was he also God? Let's look at some of the evidence for that. Firstly, Joseph. Now, as we read, Joseph thought that his wife to be had committed adultery that she'd got pregnant with another man. And it was only because Joseph was such a occurring man that he wanted to um, divorce her privately rather than to expose her to, um, to public disgrace. <clears throat> By the way, I think you know this, don't you? That the reason why we talk about adultery and um, divorce in the context of this pre-marriage situation because they were only engaged to be married, they hadn't properly got married at that stage Um, is because under the Jewish law, being engaged was a bit more than what we call being engaged, although it's a very serious thing when you get engaged, even in our culture. Um, Under Jewish law, it was a really big deal, and it could only be dissolved through a formal process of of divorce. That's how how the whole thing thing worked. Um, So why did he marry her? You know, you imagine how Joseph must have felt that his beloved being unfaithful to him, and, and not only that, but if he went through with the marriage, he himself would come under disgrace, because everyone would assume that he was the father, and that's why they were getting married quickly. And despite the formal nature of the contract of the engagement, it was still pre-marriage. So uh, sexual relations pre-marriage were still forbidden under the law. So Joseph himself would be, uh, his reputation, as well as Mary's, would have been tainted by the whole thing. Why didn't he take the easier option and just divorce her? quietly and move on. Well, as Matthew told us, it was because an angel spoke to him and explained exactly what was going on. Now, if he was claiming that an angel had spoken to him and told him to divorce Mary, the easy option, we might be thinking, well, that's convenient. Yeah, you know, you, 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 you're just being gutless, aren't you? You're claiming that an angel told you to do this. If he, if, we were claim, if he was claiming that an angel had told him to do the easy thing we might just wonder whether or not he was telling the truth, but not the other way around. Now that's one thing, but what about all the other evidence that we see in the life of Jesus? What about all those fulfilled prophecies? Now Matthew referred to some of them, a small number of them, in the passage that we read. He goes on to refer to many more throughout, throughout, throughout his gospel, and he's not the only writer, of course, that does that. Um, Many prophecies about that were fulfilled in terms of the place and the time and the circumstances of the birth of the Lord Jesus. It marks him out as the one who was promised throughout the Old Testament. Now that doesn't make him God. John the Baptist was mentioned in prophecy and he was just a man. But it does mark him out as being the special one, the Messiah, the one that God had promised. And actually some of the prophecies... They might not have been as clear as the Jews needed them to be. But when you look at the prophecies, there is more than a strong hint that the one who was coming was not going to be just just a man. The fact that it was going to be a virgin birth, as we we read, is one of those things. Um, But certainly, Jesus undoubtedly was the Messiah that the Jews were waiting for and should have recognised when he came. But then we also have his miracles. Now... Miracles are unusual. Obviously they're unusual. But they're unusual for God as well. If you look at the whole span of the Bible, miracles did not happen very often. Only at certain points in the whole span of history that the Bible covers do we get miracles. And they were always for a specific purpose. It was not the normal way that God does business. Now, in the life of the Lord Jesus, the specific purpose of the the, the miracles, apart from the fact that clearly people were healed and helped as a result of them, but the main purpose was to attest to the identity of the Lord Jesus. And and one example of, of, of where that worked is in Matthew 14, when he walked on water. And it says in verse 32 of that chapter that when he got back into the boat, when he got into the boat rather, and Peter got back into the boat, they all worshipped him. And they said, truly, you are the Son of God. So we have the miracles. We also have the fact that he claimed that he was able to forgive sins. Now you might say, well, that's just a claim. Anyone could claim that. But remember, the Jews believed that only God could forgive sins. And if Jesus was just a good religious teacher, which is the other view and what most people who didn't believe in his identity at the time were willing to concede he is a good religious teacher, if that's all he was, he never would have claimed that he was able to forgive sins, because that would be a claim to be God, and he wouldn't have done that. Matthew 9, he says about himself, the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And of course, we find examples, other examples of him forgiving people's sins that phrase son of man that i just um, mentioned there and it's part of our subject heading for today jesus the son of man was how he often referred to himself now on the one hand it's quite a a humble title isn't it son of man but there's something else in that title because it's actually the same title that daniel uses when he sees in daniel chapter 7 the prophecy that he writes He sees the heavenly one coming in power and authority, and he is called the Son of Man. So I think in the use of that title, Jesus is giving just more clues as to his identity. Another clue, of course, was in John chapter 8 when he said, before Abraham was born, I am. And actually, not just that verse, but the whole lead up to it. It was just so clear that Jesus was claiming to be God, so clear that the Jews were just ready to stone him because as far as they were concerned, not believing he was God, he was committing blasphemy. And then there was everything else. <laughs> There's a the shorthand. Uh, then there was everything else that he said and did. Peter describes himself in Second Peter 1 as an eyewitness of his majesty. The Apostle John at the beginning of his um, um, gospel says that they had beheld his glory. These men lived with Jesus for the three years of his public ministry. They were with him all the time. They saw and heard um, everything that he did. Not to mention the resurrection, which must be the most evidenced um, single event in the whole of human history. They were totally convinced that Jesus was indeed God in human form, the Son of God dwelling among them. Oh, and just one more thing. It wasn't just his loyal followers that, um, that, that believed in him and said all of this. Because we also have the words of the centurion and the other soldiers who were guarding Jesus at the crucifixion. It says in Matthew 27 that when they saw how Jesus died and the earthquake and everything else had happened at the moment of his death, they were terrified and they exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. So why have I said so much about how we know that Jesus was truly God? Well, without that, the title Son of Man means only that um, all we're left with is an ordinary man called Jesus. And there were plenty of them at the time. Jesus was actually a popular name. Jesus wasn't the only person called Jesus. <laughs> Lots of people were called Jesus. It was the Greek form of, a, of, a, of the, um, the Hebrew name Joshua, which means God saves. And you know, that was just people used to, like you know, in hope that God one day would save the people, would often call their, uh, you know, their, their, their sons um, Jesus. So he would have been completely ordinary, just a man. We're actually not not just a man, a wicked man. He wouldn't just be an ordinary man, he would be a wicked man who deliberately used his knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures and some clever magic tricks to deceive people. That's what we're left with if we take his deity out of the equation. This is um, the famous trilemma that C.S. Lewis referred to. Um, I don't think trilemma is actually a real word, but uh, you know the word dilemma, it's a a choice between two things. Well, C.S. Lewis, um, famous theologian um, and the writer of things like the Chronicles of Narnia, he's a famous writer, but more famous, I think, in Christian circles as being a great theologian, great thinker. He said it was a trilemma. He said, when you think about um, the Lord Jesus and his life carefully, We cannot say that he was just a good man. He was either delusional, he really thought he was God, even though he wasn't. Or secondly, um, he was a deceiver. He knew he wasn't God, and yet he tried his best to convince people that he was. Or thirdly, he really was who he claimed to be. Mad, bad, or God? Lunatic, liar, or lord. It's a trilemma. And there is overwhelming evidence that he was indeed the latter. Now, Jesus described himself as the son of man all the time. But there's one occasion which I'd like to go to in Matthew 20, which I think is especially relevant to our subject today. Remember, we're thinking about both his identity and his purpose in coming. And I think we get them both in this verse in Matthew 20. Matthew 20, verse 28, is just one verse. Uh, Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom to many. He came to serve. And it's hard, I found it hard, in preparing today to try and come up with a concise summary of that life of service. There's just too much to say. Hebrews 1 verse 1. Um, it says that God has spoken to us through his son. And part of his service was to uh, to us and to God was to reveal God to, to humankind, wasn't it? To, 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 to reveal God and what God is like and what God wants in a way more clearly than has ever been revealed in anything that had gone before. So that was that was part of his Part of his service, and that revelation came through the, the words that he spoke and, and the things that he did. Also, it says in Luke chapter 2 52 that from a child Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and men. He ticked all the boxes, so surely he is the perfect role model um, for us to imitate. You know, there's a bit of a myth going around that, you know, that, 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 you know, that sometimes Christians pass around, that, that to be a Christian, you really got to be, you know, if the world doesn't hate you, you're not doing your job right. Now, the Lord Jesus did say that the world would hate his disciples, but the Lord Jesus managed to grow up with enemies, yes, but still, the testimony of Luke here is that his life, there was broad appeal from from human beings as well. He lived a good life. We live a life of good works and good behaviour, of gentleness and kindness and love. That, that, that people like that. Yeah. You know, so the Lord Jesus is a, is a wonderful, wonderful role model for us. And in the context of that life, we sometimes have to tell the hard truths about the gospel and the life and death decision that God expects people to make. But nevertheless, we have in the Lord Jesus the perfect role model in all sorts, in all sorts of ways. He was also a, 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 the perfect role model for the Jews, especially, because he was the only one who ever kept all the requirements of the Old Testament law. He said in Matthew 5 that he hadn't come to abolish the law or anything that the, 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 the prophets had said, he'd come to fulfil it. Furthermore, he was also obedient to every aspect of his father's will. In John 6, 38, he says, I have come down from heaven. Another very clear claim to his deity. I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And of course, the greatest expression of that obedience was, as we we, we read, that he gave his life as a ransom for many. As the son of God, we... We might assume that all of that would be not that difficult. Uh, He's the all-powerful creator of the universe, so just doing the things that he needed to do on Earth—surely that wasn't so hard for the for the for the for the the mighty saviour. But that's, I think, is a difficult thing for our finite minds to. To, uh, to put together. Hebrews 1 says that he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful words. That's, that's, that's El Shaddai, God Almighty. But then Isaiah gives us this view of the suffering servant, the reality of his manhood, despised and rejected and a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. What did it really mean for him to become human? What did he experience? What did he give up? He was rich, but for our sakes, he became poor. We know the scripture in second Corinthians eight. and that's one thing, but it's not talking about his bank balance, of course. That he became poor. I think it's talking about um, everything that he laid aside of, of his glory that he had in heaven before he came down it's it's everything he laid aside when he became human and, and voluntarily took on human limitations. For example, we read before the, the scripture that he grew in wisdom and stature. So that suggests that there was a period in his life, well, we know this to be true, don't we? When the omniscient God who knows everything knew nothing at all. When he didn't even know how to walk or talk. He was a little baby in Bethlehem's manger. And he progressed through all the the normal stages of life, experiencing the same kind of developmental difficulties that no doubt all of us did. I'm sure he fell over a few times when he was learning to walk, for example, but that's just, you know, that's just an early example. You know, he will have learned how to become a a, a little boy, a, a young teenager, an older teenager—all of those stages of life that we go through—he has been through them all as well. Um, family pressures, social pressures, living in Nazareth, business pressures, running a business—all of those—all of those things. And and even even in that concept, context, I think there were things that were especially difficult for Jesus. Um, remember, it, it seems to us that Joseph had died at some point. We don't read about the death of Joseph, but sometime in those 30 years um, of, his, of his private ministry, Joseph died, and as the eldest son, he would have become the head of the family, so he would have taken taken on all of that responsibility. We learn later on in the Gospels that his brothers did not believe in him, and that makes me think about the experience of Joseph that we we have in the Old Testament, where where he had to endure the jealousy of his brothers because they knew that Joseph was something special. So all of that, the Lord Jesus had a difficult life, even before he started his, his public ministry. Then we have the verses which talk about his temptations, not just the famous ones in the the wilderness at the beginning of the public ministry, but throughout his life. It says in Hebrews 2 and 18 that because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Likewise, Hebrews 4 and 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Now some say that his temptations um, couldn't be like ours because it was impossible for him to sin, because he was God. Now, I don't think we can really talk about that. We just don't know what was theoretically possible. Was it Theoretically possible for the Lord Jesus to sin? Was it only his, his commitment to his Father and to his purpose that prevented him from sinning? We don't know. Was it because he had no sin in him that he couldn't respond to temptation? Well, that didn't help Adam and Eve, did it? Because they were sinless when they sinned in the garden. We just, we, we just don't know. But what matters is that the Scriptures say that the temptations that he was subject to caused him to suffer. Which is why he can help us when we go through temptations ourselves. He knows what it's like. And not in a vague, distant way. I I like the way C.S. Lewis, if I might quote him again, um, he puts it like this. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation really means. Let's go back to Matthew twenty twenty-eight. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. As a ransom for many. You know, the more we appreciate that the man, Jesus, is actually God, the one who deserves to be served more than anybody else, the harder it is for us to understand the second part of that verse, isn't it? He actually came to serve, and not just in the ways that we've been thinking about, but in the ultimate way, by giving his life as a ransom for many, to pay the penalty of sin that we were thinking about last week. To allow a righteous God to forgive the sins of any who come in repentance to him and ask for that forgiveness. Any who believe in the identity and the purpose of the God who came to save. Now we don't know at what point God's plan was revealed to Jesus as he grew in knowledge and wisdom. Maybe it was very early on or maybe it was much later We know that by the time we get to Matthew 20, Jesus is able to tell his disciples in great detail exactly what was going to happen. And towards the end of his public ministry, um, he tells them more and more about what's going to go on. But I think it's, it's in Gethsemane where we see the clearest proof that he knew not only what was going to happen, but he had a... He had an anticipation, an understanding of, of how it was going to affect him in such a a way that, as we know, it, it brought him to um, his knees. And, and I think that's what Hebrews 5 uh, verses 7 and 9 are talking about. It's kind of a, a passage which could be speaking about the whole of his life of temptation, but it appeals to me that it's, uh, and from the plain reading of the, w- of the words, it looks like it's referring very specifically to Gethsemane. It says in Hebrews 5 verse 7, "'During the days of Jesus' life on earth, "'he offered up prayers and petitions "'with fervent cries and tears "'to the one who could save him from death. "'And he was heard because of his reverent submission. "'Son, though he was, "'he learned obedience from what he suffered,' And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. He learned obedience and he was made perfect. And when he concluded his prayers in Gethsemane with those words, not my will, but yours be done, I think there we see the, uh, a sign of the of the completion of that work of perfection. So not to suggest the Lord was never imperfect, but in a sense, until he completed that life journey, everything that we've been talking about and more, there was a sense of incompleteness. And through his journey, he learned the cost of obedience. He learned the price of doing the right thing, of yielding not to temptation and then at the end he resisted the greatest temptation of all. After 33 years of preparation he was ready to go to the cross and to become the source of eternal salvation for us all. So why did Jesus become the Son of Man? To reveal more about God and his plans, to show us how to live to learn about us more um, through the weaknesses he experiences and the, and the temptations that he, he faced. But most of all, as I said last week, it was for him to save us from the penalty of sin. He had to die in our place. And as it says in Hebrews 2, he could only do that as a man, because only through his death we can live. i uh, just read a couple of verses in Hebrews 2. It's just Just bring that to life. Hebrews 2 verse um, 14, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Verse 17, for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human, in every way. So in Bethlehem's manger, we see God's gift to the world, don't we? And the sad thing is that in the Christmas season, that's what people. That's, 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 they, they assume the story ends there in a sense. They think, well, that's the gift, the baby. But it's not, isn't it? It's everything that that little baby grew up and went on to do in his life. and then, ultimately. In his death. But let's not forget that um, the death on the cross was not the end of the story. The Son of Man never ceased to be the Son of God, and now he is raised and and glorified and coming back um, one day for us. And so I'm going to finish with those lovely words in the book of Philippians. Just going to leave you um, with this passage, I won't comment on it, just leave you with these words, and then we'll close.